We just sang the song, Not In Me. I don't know if you are like me. When I was young, I pretty much ignored the words of all the hymns, but as I've grown, grown older, they just impact more and more. The words that we just sang could have been based upon today's text. No list of sins I have not done, no list of virtues I pursue, no list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. Now contrast that with in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the publican. Do you remember what the publican said, what the tax collector said? He said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And the contrast in our text is in the first 14 verses of Mark chapter 7, where the scribes and the Pharisees believe that their standing before God is something that they have earned, that they are coming before God in a position of strength. And I don't know why we feel like we need to do that. But that is our default sinful nature. They believed that their standing included a list of sins they had not done, of people whom they were not like, lifted hands in prayer, traditions they kept, tearful songs that they sing. I mean, read the book of Malachi. You cover my altar with tears, but your heart is far from me. Yes, they were emotional in worship, but they were rejecting truth. They judged other people who were more broken as spiritually inferior. Mark 7 begins with Jesus' response to them. And we're going to be looking at three parts of that today. The question in really verses 1 through 23 that's asked is, who is and who is not accepted by God? And then we have two examples of that later in the chapter. The Jews, the Jewish Pharisees and scribes said, I have great standing before God. I am here, and I have earned it. Jesus said, you hypocrites. You have no standing. You don't understand sin. You don't understand grace. You don't understand salvation, the character of God, nature of man. Other than that, you're all good. Then Jesus calls the crowds together, and he teaches them about what sin really is. And then, of course, he has to explain it again to his disciples. None of us can claim standing before God. So wrong on every level. And then you have the case of the Gentile woman, the Syrophoenician woman, in verses 24 to 30. Her approach is, I have no standing before you. I have, I simply ask for grace. And Jesus' response to her is, you're right, you have no standing, and now you receive grace. And then you've got the Gentile deaf and mute man in verses 31 to 37. And basically he says, I have no way even to hear about, much less ask for grace. I mean, he's, he's there just as I am without one plea because he can't make one. Literally without one plea. And Jesus says, you're right. You have no standing. Good. And now I will make you whole again, because that's what Jesus does with broken people. Jesus heals those who admit that they are needy, 
those who know that they have no claim on him, those who have no place else to go. In one sense, Mark chapter 7 is the gospel on display. It's a, it's a picture of grace applied with Jesus at the center of everything. In another sense, Mark chapter 7 and on into Mark chapter 8 is a lesson in the storyline of what happened between Acts 1 and Acts 28, of the unfolding of God's plan as we see it, and now we live it here on Signal Mountain. Jesus said in Matthew 28, as Chris Petty preached last Sunday, summarized, go tell everyone, everywhere, everything about me. That's what he was saying. In Acts 1-8, he was more specific, start in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost part of the earth. And that's always been God's plan. Genesis, from Genesis uh, 12, when Israel was, was uh, uh, called out, when God called Abraham, and said, I'm going to form a nation out of you, and in you, all the other nations of the earth will be blessed. God established Israel so that that would happen, and you can just track that throughout the whole Old Testament. So it, when you look at the, at the book of Acts, the Jerusalem part, in Jerusalem, in Acts 1 through 7, all of a sudden, these Orthodox Jews are welcoming in Greek Jews, that is, Hellenistic Jews. They're, they've adopted the culture and the ways of, the, of Greek culture. So there's, there's really a, a clash there, and we see it erupt from time to time in Acts 1 through 7. It especially erupts in Acts chapter 6, and the deacons come from that conflict, but they adjust, they get used to it. Their identity is in Christ, and they are Jews in Christ together. And then the first martyr is Stephen, a Greek Jew. Acts chapters 8 through 12 the gospel expands to the Samaritans. And they're not Greek Jews. They're not even entirely Jewish. They're half Jew, half Gentile. It's an unexpected thing. They didn't plan on that. But then God spreads the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, a Gentile. But he's going back to Ethiopia. He's out of here. And then there's Cornelius a Gentile centurion, and then his family. So, but it's one family, it's one group, and they tell the Jerusalem church about it in Acts 11, but then the church, a church is established in Gentile Antioch, starting in Acts chapter 11. Now, at this time, the, Gent, the Jews had a phrase, we've talked about it before, the Jews had a phrase that was sometimes expressed this way. Gentile dogs. Right? Three words. Gentile dogs. Don't know how that's coming across the sound system. You know, we get these transcribed. I wonder what that's going to look like. But that was, that was the attitude towards Gentiles. And you can see, as the gospel is expanding, tensions are are rising. And then in Acts chapters 13 through 28, the uttermost part, the expansion of the church to the Jews continues, but mostly it's to the Gentiles in Europe. The big story of salvation for all people is unfolding before their eyes. The disciples did not invent this. 
they were dragged into this, kicking and screaming. Yes, our Jewish church has a Gentile. Yes, our Jewish church has a family of Gentiles. Yes, our Jewish church has several Gentile families. Yes, our Jewish church has all kinds of Gentiles. Yes, our Jewish church is no longer Jewish. Do you see the issue of identity beginning to come into focus? Who are we as our identity to be determined by our tribe? Is our identity part of who we are? Not because of anything we've done, but because we are in Christ and he is our identity. In fact, I believe that Mark, who wrote these words, was dragged into this. And it makes Mark chapter 7 all the more startling. And I'm, if you think I haven't been in the deep end, I'm going to jump into it a little bit more. And then we're going to get back into our, get into our text. I want, you to, I want you to stay with me on this. When the gospel expanded on the first missionary journey, Mark traveled. This, the man who wrote this traveled with Paul and his cousin Barnabas, but Mark's cousin Barnabas. And Paul did indeed go to the Jew first. But then he would go to the Gentiles, the Greeks. And the further out he went, the more Gentiles there were. That's just the way that that happened. It was one thing to say that the gospel was for Gentile dogs in theory, but it was quite another thing to have the reality unfold before your eyes. Well, Mark abandoned the first missionary journey, and he went home, right in the middle of it. He didn't go home to the sending church in Antioch. He went home to Mama in Jerusalem, his mother's house. And what, do you, what does a missionary say when he returns from the field and he's got no good reason for returning? Well, Mark may well have been the catalyst that sparked the Jerusalem conflict and council in Acts chapter 15 when Paul and Barnabas got back. That council was all about whether or not Gentiles had to become Jews by circumcision in order to be saved. What that would mean is, if they did, our identity is not in Christ. Our identity is still in our tribe. And you would have two churches. So, after the Jerusalem Council, and the gospel was reaffirmed, Paul did not think that Mark was fit to join into the ministry to the Gentiles. So he left and left Mark behind. And Barnabas took Mark and discipled him further. And the beautiful thing is that God is a God of change. And God changed the heart of Mark. And we see that in these pages. And we also see the truth that when Paul was about to die, roughly 25, 30 years later, Paul wrote to Timothy, get Mark, bring him with you, I'm about to die, he is profitable to me. So God's story of redemption, the spread of the gospel 
in Christ, not in identity politics, was written in Acts 1 through 28 by Luke, a Gentile doctor. Wait a minute, Luke. Wait, wait, just a minute. You mean that that Gentile over there who dresses differently, who speaks with an accent, who in earlier times used to visit pagan temple prostitutes, that guy is grafted in, is forgiven, and is now my brother, an elder maybe in my church? Yes. Looking beyond the cultural to the spiritual is a hard lesson. But, you, and, and the reason's obvious, you have to unlearn almost everything, every negative lesson from your past. But here's the thing, you have to rethink identity. You have to rethink identity. Who am I? It's not my skin tone not my education. It's none of those things. And if I try to find my identity and my value in any of those things, I am doing exactly the opposite of what God says in the gospel. So this slice in Mark 7 of the gospel of Mark is, is a microcosm of the redemption of God's plan. And the stories that are here about the woman and the man are not just a part of a picture album of small stories that were randomly taped together in the back of a picture book. There are, if you were to take the, the, these stories, and you know, I think it was last week, Betsy and I were looking at something, and, and one of us had a picture, and we, just a regular photograph, and we tried to enlarge it. You know, <laughs> well, you would with your phone. <laughs> well, if you were to do that, with, if you were to take the rest of Mark chapter 7 and, and, and want to enlarge it, the contours of it look like what they are. It's the direction that God is heading. Two weeks ago, Lewis took us through verses 1 through 13 where the scribes and their Pharisees thought that they, had, uh, they were the ones that God approved and Jesus calls them hypocrites. Look at verse 8. He calls them hypocrites in verse 6. His indictment in verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Now, tradition is not necessarily a bad thing except when it conflicts with God's word. And Jesus told them in verse 9, you are expert. Do you want to be an expert at something? Here's what they were experts at. You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Now, by contrast, Jesus quotes Scripture, not tradition. He quotes Isaiah. He quotes Exodus to make his point. So you get the picture here. The scribes and the Pharisee appeal to their traditions to rebuke Jesus. Jesus appeals to Scripture to rebuke the scribes and Pharisees. Which would you rather be? Jesus quoted in verses 6 and 7, quoted from Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. And then we pick up our story today in verse 14, where Jesus called the crowd to him. Do you notice the difference there? He's calling everybody in. When Jesus gathers a crowd instead of trying to avoid a crowd, can we agree that that's significant? He begins with this megaphone announcement. Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Verse 15, there is nothing outside a person which can defile him if it goes into him. 
But the things which come out of a person are what defile the person. And the point is that he's driving towards is that sin is a heart issue. The scribes and the Pharisees regarded their identity as Jews and as keeping the, the traditions as their safety net. That's how they please God. But Jesus challenges those traditions publicly, and he wants the crowd to hear. He wants them all to know his teaching about what is clean and unclean, and that clean and unclean don't have to do with food. Not, they don't have to do with Aldi's versus Whole Foods or anything. It's a matter of your heart. And they would have been, this would have stunned most of the Jewish listeners who had been taught that righteousness was more a matter of a checklist. Lewis made the point that we all have some of the Pharisee in us right? We all have that checklist mentality. Are you a Christian? Oh, of course I am. I go to church. I've been baptized and I put money in the offering box. Of course I'm a Christian. That's just wrong on all levels. Jesus is the one who defines the meaning of clean and unclean in terms of our identity in him. So after Jesus explains this, after he explains it to the crowd, it's clear, right? The disciples get it, right? No. Verse 17, they basically say, huh? Uh, in verse 18, Jesus said, are you so lacking in understanding as well? Do you not understand? And he goes straight to the elemental canal, which he created, by the way. Do you not understand whatever goes into the person from outside cannot defile him, but uh, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Food goes into the mouth and begins a journey in a different direction. And that's, by the way, that's why later Paul talked about how meat offered to idols poses no intrinsic spiritual harm to a true believer because it's just biology, right? Mark adds parenthetically, thereby he declared all foods clean. Now, the church later understood this at the principal level. For Jews, they're, they're no longer clean and unclean foods. And the same principle was applied for Gentile believers later with food offered to idols. It's just biology. It's not a clean or unclean thing. Verse 20, he was saying that which comes out, that is from within out of the person, is what defiles the person. It's not eating the wrong foods it's not eating with ceremonially clean or unclean hands. It's not keeping score with any spiritual checklist. It's the heart, not the stomach. When evil comes out, it exposes you to yourself and who and what you are. Verse 21, for from within, out of the hearts of people, the evil thoughts, actions, of sex, uh, acts of sexual immorality, thefts, murders, acts of adultery, deeds of greed, wickedness, deceit, indecent behavior, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within. But both times, he says, from within, from within. They are what defile a person. Now, there are several sin lists in the New Testament. Each word here is worth its own sermon. But here's the bottom line. Sinful thoughts, which we all have, right? Okay, sinful thoughts, which we all have, when they are nurtured, when we feed them, yield to sinful actions. 
James, Jesus' little brother, described how sin has a gestation period. James 1.14, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. It's alive within you. It's dormant, but growing. It's being nurtured by what you feed it, and it will work its way out. It doesn't become sin on the outside. It is sin within. So Jesus says the origin of sin is the same whether you're a, gen, a Jew or a Gentile. Now think about this. If the origin of sin is the same for everybody, if the payment for sin is the same for everybody, Jesus' work on the cross in our place, if the effect of redemption from sin is the same for everyone, then on what basis would we ever regard another person as unclean? or as of a different tribe, or having a different identity from you in Christ. Uncleanness is not transmitted by exposure. It's not, it's not the delta variant of sin. Jesus not only associated with the people that they would call unclean, he touched them, the lepers, the sick, the hemorrhaging woman, and now people whose very identity as Gentiles made them unclean. The woman we're about to meet is a living example of this, and so is the deaf man. They are broken Gentile people. And so are the mostly Gentile 4,000 people that Jesus is going to feed in chapter 8. All were needy. The gospel is not for those who say they are clean, but for the unclean and the broken. And Jesus is the only one who declares the unclean clean. Now, before I continue, I want to say this. If you're sitting here thinking, oh, this is nice. I've been saved, and now I'm clean. I'm one of them by God's grace. And I, I love that this study doesn't challenge me to change in any way. That's Thank you, Gary. Um, it's all about those naughty scribes and Pharisees, right? No. This has serious gospel implications. Jesus pulls us out of our comfort zone, just as he did, Mark. But he challenges us to think about all the people around you, all image bearers around you, people for whom Jesus died, and people who are in front of you today. The person at the checkout counter needs to see Jesus' love in you. The LGBTQ activist neighbor whose car just died, needs to see Jesus' love in you. The person whose pickup truck has a Confederate flag on the back, who just cuts you off on the W road, needs to see Jesus' love in you. Doesn't matter where you are. Where is your identity, folks? Is it tribal? Or is your identity in Christ? So, Years, uh, not long ago, not years, two years, I guess, ago, at our last men's retreat, the speaker posed the question, what am I doing today that only a Christian would do? We can be nice, right? But what am I doing today that only a Christian would do? And if you look at the 
circumstances of your day through that lens, it makes your day look different. Uh, right after he said that, I remember immediately, I was in the hospital seeing someone, and I passed by a man who looked different from me, who spoke a different language from me, who was on the telephone, and who was very frustrated, very upset, because he had no way to get home. He lived in the projects downtown, and he had no way to get home, and uh, um, he, was, he, he was on the house phone there trying to get somebody to, how does he get home? He'd been just been released from the hospital. And I walked past him. And about 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet on, the Lord said, Gary. He didn't say it audibly, but I knew what he meant. And so I walked back, but the guy was still on the phone, thankfully, so I could leave again. And I did. And I just, and there was a bathroom. For me at my age, no bathroom left behind, so then I went there and then I got back out and he was getting off the phone. Sir, can I give you a ride? And so I drove him home. Never said a word to me. Never even said, said thank you. So I just, as I pulled up, just said, I'm so glad that in Jesus' name I can give you a ride home. That was it. <laughs> so, you know, that was two years ago. I've had a lot of days since then. What am I doing today that only a Christian would do? Where is my identity? Jesus came to, uh, to redeem a broken world. Now, so you're sitting there thinking, okay, it's uh, almost 12 o'clock. There are a lot of verses here. And uh, Jesus is about to do some strange things. He calls a woman a dog and he spits on a disabled man. I thought that'd get your attention. <laughs> Jesus has been traveling through uh, uh, Tyre and Sidon and Phoenicia, it borders Galilee. It's, he's, he's traveling kind of the circuit outside, and we're not sure how long this, this journey took. So one scholar just estimated maybe eight months at the outside, possibly, but he's, he's dealing with a lot of people. So there, Mark picks two stories to include of all of that time, as I understand it. Uh, so there these two episodes that reinforce something about the gospel. Now, okay, he's trying to, Jesus arrives, he's in, in, in the, the, the uh, um, uh, Tyre and Sidon region, and uh, he is seeking some isolation. Verse 25, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Verse 26, the woman was a Gentile, of Syrophoenician descent. She repeatedly asked him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So she's not a Jew. She's descended from the Phoenicians, which is now the region of Syria. She's a Canaanite, okay? She's a pagan. Uh, she's a, a, a woman, possibly a single mother. I would assume that she's tried everything else, but there's no place to go, nowhere else to go. Verse 27, Jesus responds to her, let the children be satisfied first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay. That's politically incorrect evangelism right there. 
And, and by the way, if this episode were invented, uh, the words here would have been much less blunt. Why does Jesus speak to her like this? Four things. Jew first, Gentile dogs, house pets, and we're being set up. Four things. First of all, there is an order of salvation in both history and in priority that Jesus affirms. Romans 1.16, the gospel is to the Jew first. The children of the household were fed before the dogs. We don't apologize for that. Romans 11 tells us we are grafted into the branch. The, I'm sorry, we're grafted into the root. The root is Israel. But Israel is the root not by works, but by grace. So we're all grafted in together. This is the salvation is still of the Jews, but it is for everyone. So first, Jew first. Second, Gentile dogs. Jesus spoke of the Gentiles. Uh, I'm sorry, the Jews spoke of the Gentiles, as I mentioned, as dogs. The word for, uh, for, that the Jews used was the word kuon. Kuon refers to the wild dogs, street dogs. Uh, sometimes the term was used symbolically of, uh, of an immoral person as you could expect here. It was the, the kind of dog that you would expect to find at Gehenna in the garbage dump, which was one of the words for hell. Jesus changed the meaning of the word kuon, however, and he applied it in a different way. Listen to this. Matthew 7, 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under your, their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Exactly who is Jesus talking about? Actually, it seems like he's including fellow Jews here. All the way to the end of the New Testament, Revelation 22. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning of the, and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs. And he describes other people. The dogs populate those they are the population of those who are outside of heaven philippians 3 beware of the dogs beware of evil workers beware of the false circumcision for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of god and take pride in christ jesus not in the flesh paul is describing some judaizers for example uh, maybe a pharisee who would claim to be a christian but promoted keeping the law in order to be saved. You get this? The, log, the dogs are not the Gentiles. They're the Jews here. So those who are called Gentile dogs are the very people that, uh, who, who, who call the Gentiles dogs are the very people Scripture calls dogs. Third, this is huge. Anybody hearing Jesus' comment to the woman would do a double take because instead of the common word for something like a street dog, I mentioned the word was kuon. That's the word. It's not the word Jesus used. That's the standard word for Gentile dogs. Jesus uses a different word, canarion, which means little, little dog or puppy or house dog. It, the idea is a house pet. This word places the woman inside the household. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? They would have done a double take on that. Wait a minute. So a house dog is not a child, but is still cared for. And that leads to the fourth point. We're being set up. Jesus often sets us up for teachable moments. Over and over again, he does it like 
excuse me, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. Or, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Or to the rich young ruler, to have eternal life, keep these commandments. And the man says, I've kept those all my life. Jesus says, great. Go sell everything and follow me. And he walked away because he loved his bank account more than he loved Jesus, which is commandment number one. By the way, let me, let me just add, there are many examples of this where Jesus is setting people up for teachable moments. They're aimed at the hearers, but they're also aimed at us. Back to the story. The woman caught that Jesus used a different word for dog, and she did not miss a beat. Verse 28, she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table, house dog, feed on the children's crumbs. She basically says when the children are messy eaters, isn't what falls to the floor a fair game? If you're in the household... Everybody does get fed, but in an order. And she doesn't argue about the order, but she asks a very reasonable exception be made based upon desperate need. And by the way, Jesus has already made those exceptions with other Gentiles. And let me add, when we're reading this, we're not hearing tone of voice, inflection of words, eye contact, gestures, pauses, any number of other verbal and visual clues that we would need to interpret how Jesus is connecting with this woman. So let's just make sure that we know that. And, and, and Mark is not saying that she is sinless, right? Or that she has a good heart or that she is clean. She's not. The point is that unlike the scribes and Pharisees, she's not self-deceived. She knows who she is. And her story is a picture of how we get saved. She comes to Jesus in humility. She doesn't argue, why can't I, I become a child too. It's just not fair. She, she comes to him in repentance. She's turned her back on her false beliefs of the past. She comes to him in faith. She falls at his feet unconditionally. The only person in, in, in Mark's gospel who calls Jesus Lord is her. Only time in the, the gospel of Mark. A Canaanite woman in pagan territory. And by the way, the parallel in Matthew, Jesus praises her for her faith. She comes to him in humility, repentance, faith, and by grace. She has no list of things that she has done that she feels God owes her. She comes to Jesus with needs, not rights. She comes to Jesus with needs, not rights. In salvation, when we come to him, it's not with, I deserve, but I need. I've got no place to go. But I'm asking anyway for your grace. The epilogue to the story is in verse 29. He said to her, because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And after going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon gone. Great story. The next case, very quickly, is the Gentile man in verses 31 to 37. And this is the only place this story is recorded in all four Gospels. I mean, in any of the four Gospels. We don't know, as I said, how much time Jesus spent doing, doing things in this whole region, in this area. But here are two of those stories. And, and Mark records this in verse 31. Again, he left the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. 
So now we're on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee, again in Gentile territory. This is the place where we met Gerizim Demoniac, the guy that Jesus had, Legion, where Jesus had cast out demons. And, and he was, when we left him, he was telling everybody about Jesus. So now when Jesus shows up, verse 32, they brought to him one who was deaf and had difficulty speaking. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself. I mean, maybe they can see, uh, but Jesus is, is having a private moment with this man. Uh, and he put his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, and I have to tell you, the Greek word for spit is ptuo. Isn't that lovely? That's the Greek word for spit. Sometimes it's just worth coming to church, isn't it? <laughs> okay. After spitting, he touched his tongue with a saliva, and looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Now, Jesus could have healed this man without a word. Why the theatrics? I agree with the suggestion that others have made about this, that Jesus was showing the man privately what he was about to do without distractions. So that the guy's kind of thinking, okay, so Jesus is touching my ears that cannot hear. Jesus is touching my tongue that cannot speak clearly. And now Jesus is looking to heaven, to God for what he's doing. And now Jesus sighs as if he's about to speak. And I know something is about to happen. And then the creator who created ears, said, Ephatha. It's not a magic word, abracadabra, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. The creator who created ears said, be opened. It's translated for us, be opened. And the ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and began speaking plainly. And he, Jesus, gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. We know... Jesus wanted to avoid the circus. Hey, the miracle worker's in town. Jesus wanted his miracles explained by his redemptive interpretation. One person said it well. We like crowds, quantity. Jesus pursued quality. There was also a political reason for putting a cap on his notoriety. The whole region was a political powder keg. As hap you know, a couple of decades later, everything did blow up. The Jews were looking for a leader to follow and to overthrow Rome. Now, what if you, just speculating here, what if you apply the rumors that they have heard about Jesus into a political plan to overthrow Rome? What if you join the rumors about Jesus to overthrowing Rome? Think about a leader who could miraculously feed his followers, no logistic problems, who could heal their wounds from battle or raise them from the dead from battle. Or control the weather. That's a leader to follow. <laughs> now, if you think, Gary, okay, that's pretty far-fetched. Nobody would b believe a bizarre conspiracy theory like that. If you think that, watch the news. But it was not yet Jesus' time. The fuse leading up to the crucifixion had an expiration date on it. Passover. And... Jesus 
will overthrow Rome. He will. But not by explosion, by implosion. After the cross, the Great Commission, go tell everyone, everywhere, everything about me, and the world will never be the same. And here's the cool thing about this episode that would normally go unnoticed, but Mark is very intentional about his words. In verse 32, the word used to describe the man's inability to speak occurs only here in all of the New Testament and occurs only once in all of the Greek Old Testament. And it's from a prophecy in Isaiah 35, same word, only in those two places, once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. In Isaiah 35, verse 6, prophesies the future healing ministry of the Messianic age. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. There's our guy. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb, and here's that word, the tongue of the dumb, shout for joy. The only place the same word occurs. The point I'm getting at is the prophesied miracle-working Jewish Messiah is working that miracle on a Gentile. Why? Because that's where identity is. We're one in Christ. Verse 37 gives an interesting epilogue. They were utterly astonished, saying he has done all things well. And he makes even those who are deaf hear, those who are unable to talk, speak. He has, and, and, and he has done is a tense that implies that the work is complete and permanent. And I love what Kurt said about that as we began. It's an unintended summary statement, I think, by Gentiles who spoke better than they knew about his ministry outside Galilee and Judea. And it's a phrase that echoes creation from Genesis 1:31, and it was very good. Jesus is the one who is the author of the new creation. The creator who is the author of the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. That is our identity, right? That's who we are. Not identity politics. Not in this group or that group. We're one in Christ. Mark 7 is all about the gospel. The Jewish Pharisees and scribes, I have great standing before God. I earned it. Jesus, you are so wrong. You hypocrites. The Gentile Syrophoenician woman, I have no standing before God. I ask for grace. Jesus, you're right. You have no standing. You may receive grace. The Gentile deaf and mute man, I have no way of hearing or even asking for grace. Jesus, you're right. You have no standing. You have no plea. And now I will make you whole again. Now, if you think of those three episodes briefly in reverse order, what did the deaf and mute man have going for him? For him. Nothing. Jesus even had to use kind of a, a kind of a sign language to connect with him. What did the Syrophoenician woman have going for her? Nothing. What did she have going against her? Well, it's likely she was a single mother, a Canaanite, a woman uh, whose child is demon-possessed, so she faces racial, social, cultural, spiritual, and physical barriers. Other than that, her best life now is just great. 
when we consider the scribes and the Pharisees, is there something in us that makes us want to approach God from a position of strength? I asked that question at the very beginning, and I'm asking it now at the end. Is there something in us that makes us want to come to God and, and, and feel like we're, we're at a good place because of who we are or because of what we have done? But isn't that what sin is? Jesus heals those who admit they are needy, those who know they have no claim on him, those who have no place else to go. He's not looking at the Gentiles and saying, y'all go and clean up now and then come on back and we'll talk. He's not looking uh, at the, at, from the opposite and saying, you know, you Gentiles are clean just like the Jews are. You're all clean. He's looking at everybody and saying, no one is clean. You're all unclean. In fact, no one has standing before God. This is the gospel. All have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. But the good news is that even though the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God, the free gift is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this. God wants us to come to him, not from a position of strength. He wants us to come to him in our brokenness and our weakness. When you're at a place where you are the weakest, then you are at a place where you can receive grace. Listen to Paul. The Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. When I am weak, that I'm strong. When we are weak and broken, the point is that he is strong in us. Lord, I thank you for this study, the meditation, and these verbal pictures of these people. Lord, we know that your word tells us that there are so many things that Jesus said and did that if they were written in the books, the world couldn't contain the volumes. We thank you for what we have in our hands. And Lord, we pray that we would understand from what is written how we are to love you well and to love those around us well and to revel in the truth that our identity is in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we close, I have the privilege of, in, of bringing another family into the membership of Signal Mountain Bible Church. Jason and Becca Susong.